Our Bible reading this morning is Mark chapter 14, beginning to read at verse 1, and this is on page 1020 of the Church Bibles. Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I? It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives.
Before we begin, let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come before you this morning to look at your word. We pray that you will speak to us through that word. We ask that you'll help us to grasp the true meaning behind the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And we pray especially that you will apply it to our hearts and to our minds. All this we ask in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard of Herman Bavink. Uh, he was a superb Dutch theologian, lived in the late 19th century, died in the early 1920s. And he once wrote this. In order to live comforted and die happily, we need certainty about the invisible and eternal things above. We must know what we are and where we are going. We must know that our personhood is more than just a ripple in the ocean. In all this, our greatest need is for certainty. It is the deepest, although often unconscious, need of the human soul. Now, as Christians, we know that there is certainty, and it's found in the story that answers all of life's questions, questions about ultimate purpose and meaning. It's a story often summarized as creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The story unfolds in the Bible over a few thousand years. We learn that God created everything, including man, that man fell into sin and judgment by disobeying him, but that God the Son, Jesus Christ, came as the redeemer, the rescuer, and that he will in future return as the restorer. We were created, we fell, God sent a redeemer who will return as the restorer. And if someone asks you what the Bible's about, then that's not a bad place to start. Now if that story, as it's gradually unfolded in the Bible, is true, then we should expect to see predictions about the coming redeemer accurately fulfilled, right? If God said, I will provide a rescuer, which he did, and here are some details, which he did, then those details should prove to be accurate. We should see the details and the predictions come true, and we absolutely do. We see prophecies fulfilled to a level of detail and accuracy which is without comparison. The prophecies and their subsequent fulfillment completely undermine any accusation of coincidence or manipulation of the account of Jesus' life. It's a strong claim. So let me just scratch the surface. I'll give you just a few of the hundreds of prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament, written hundreds and thousands of years before, all of which come true. And even if you've revisited these many times before, you can't help but be amazed. Micah chapter 5, he will be born in Bethlehem. Jeremiah 31, infants will be massacred at his birth. Hosea chapter 11, he'll be called back from Egypt, which he was as a child. Isaiah 35, he'll heal the deaf, the blind, and the mute. Zechariah chapter 9, he'll enter Jerusalem on a cult hailed as a king. 
Zechariah 11. He will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and the money used to buy a potter's field. Isaiah 53, he'll be silent before his accusers. He will be killed with criminals, but he will be buried in a rich man's grave. Psalm 22, he'll have his hands and feet pierced. He'll be mocked and insulted, and soldiers will cast lots for his clothing. And last but by no means least, Psalm 16, he will be resurrected. And that's just a sample of the more obvious ones. They all came true with Christ, right down to the smallest detail like the betrayer's money being used to buy a potter's field and soldiers casting lots for his clothing. It's way beyond coincidence and it's impossible to bring about through manipulation. Now, honest historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, will confirm two things. They will confirm that those prophecies were written hundreds and thousands of years before Christ. And secondly, they will confirm that the events described did indeed take place with Christ, although they'll again get slippery on the details of joining the dots. But it doesn't stop there. It carries on in the New Testament when Jesus himself gives a number of prophecies about things that would happen to him. So in the Gospel of Mark, until chapter 10, which we've been looking at, Jesus has been going around his public ministry. He's been ministering to people, he's been teaching them, he's been performing miracles, he's been demonstrating who he really was. And in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, there is then a sudden sense of urgency to move quickly to Jerusalem. So keep your place in Mark 14 and turn to page 1015, 1015. <clears throat> and look at verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. They knew, humanly speaking, that this was a really bad idea because of the enemies that lay in wait. And some of those disciples had dropped away. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. He tells them he's going to be betrayed. He tells them he's going to be sentenced to death. He tells them he's going to be handed over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged, and to be killed. He tells them he will be resurrected. And he then leads them to Jerusalem, where this is all going to happen, where all of those impossibly specific prophecies in the Old Testament and the ones about, that he's given about himself, about him being the Messiah, the Redeemer in the story, keep getting fulfilled one after the other, after the other, after the other. Now in today's passage, we see three very significant events, which in the space of just a few days are a tipping point or a milestone, if you will in the unfolding story of Christ fulfilling his mission of being our Redeemer, of being our Messiah. And those three events are the preparation, the anointing, they are the plotting, the betrayal, and they are the Passover, the sacrificial lamb. So firstly, we'll look at the preparation, the anointing, and this is in verses 1 to 9. 
So it's a few days before the Passover. Okay, and Jesus and his disciples gather together for a meal at Bethany. They're on their way to Jerusalem, and they're pretty close now. They're just a couple of miles away. <clears throat> but this is no ordinary meal. Now, in the Gospel of John, the same account, John chapter 12, he gives us details which we don't have with Mark. And if we combine the two narratives, then we have a very helpful and complete picture. And we discover that the meal took place at the home of Simon the leper, probably uh, healed by Christ. So Simon is there. The apostles, all 12 of them, are there. Mary and her sister Martha, Martha and their brother Lazarus, resurrected just two months earlier, are all there. Can you imagine the dinner conversation? If ever there was a time to be a fly on the wall, and this is it. And while they're at the table, Mary brings out a small translucent alabaster jar filled with pure nard. Now, nard was extremely rare and it was really valuable. It's a perfume made from a plant in the Himalayas in northern India, a long way away from Bethany. And it was a gift that was usually exchanged by kings. And that little jar of perfume was worth the equivalent of one year's wages. In our money, well over 10,000 pounds. She walks up to Jesus carrying the sealed jar. She breaks the neck of the jar and she pours thousands of pounds worth of nard on Jesus' head and on his feet and then wipes his feet with her hair. And we have two completely opposite reactions around the table. Look at verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. They're shocked. They can't believe what they're seeing. There was no state welfare system. There's no national health. There were many people living in grinding poverty around them every day. And their reaction is, this is a complete waste. It could have been helped to to alleviate the suffering of the poor. And they rip into Mary. Now if you look at John, that response, you learn, is led by Judas. And he's saying it not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he knew what the perfume was worth. Jesus, however, has a completely different reaction. Look at verse 6. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He commends her. He rebukes the rebukers, and he says that she will always be remembered for what she has done, which we're now doing 2,000 years later. People were anointed for many reasons during that time, but Jesus tells us why Mary anointed him. In verse 8, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Jesus knew he would die. He knew that his body wouldn't be properly anointed in preparation for his death and burial. 
Did Mary understand the significance of what she was doing? We're not 100% sure. Was her motive to anoint Jesus in preparation for his burial, or was it just an emotional, heartfelt expression of devotion to Christ? Now, a lot of commentators leave it open, but I think she knew, at least to some extent, what she was doing. You know, firstly, think about what she had just done. She sacrificed a family heirloom or her life's savings on 30 seconds. Secondly, remember that Jesus had recently reminded them again that he was going to be killed. And finally, remember that they knew he urgently wanted to get to Jerusalem. His death wasn't far off. So it's probably fair to say that Mary, inspired by God, had a strong inkling that Jesus' anointing needed to happen now. Now was the time. Impressive lady, wasn't she? Unquestioning devotion, submission to Christ, doesn't care at all what anybody else thinks, doesn't hesitate to sacrifice the most valuable thing she has. Just eternally thankful to her Messiah for what he's going to do, for forgiveness, for mercy, the complete opposite of Judas. And that's the first significant event in today's passage. It's the preparation, the anointing. And then in verse 10, we have the second significant event, which is the plotting, the betrayal. John tells us a bit more in his account about Judas. So Judas was the treasurer for the group. He looked after the money bag, which he would occasionally empty to his own benefit. It's interesting that Christ gave him that job. So while I'm worried for the poor, comes out of Judas's mouth, what's going on in his head is all that money and my cut down the drain. Now what probably happened right there was that Judas realized that the rabbi, Jesus, had no intention of setting up a physical kingdom on the earth. And that was the last straw for him. He realized that his dreams of wealth and power and adoration, of being one of the twelve, of being a prince in the new kingdom, were not going to be realized. And so he decides to pursue betrayal as a route to wealth and fame. So that anointing, which was an encouragement for Jesus and a blessing for Mary and a lesson for the others, is a tipping point for Judas. So in verse 10, Mark says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And Jesus knew. He knew what was going on in Judas's mind, and he knew what was going on in his heart. So in verse 18 we read, While they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he said, one who dips his bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written, about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 17, Jesus gives us a parable. A parable about a beggar who was stepped over by a wealthy man his entire life. And both of them die. And the beggar goes to glory to be with Abraham. And the wealthy man goes to hell. And from hell, the wealthy man pleads with Abraham to send the beggar to warn his brothers. 
And Abraham says to him, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, please, says the beggar, uh, says the wealthy man. If someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. And Abraham replies, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Similarly, Judas knew the truth. He'd been with Christ a long time. He'd been known as a student and as a close companion of Jesus. He lived with Jesus and the other disciples for the better part of three years. He traveled long, dusty roads with these missionary comrades of his. He ate with them. He sat around evening fires with them. He talked about the kingdom of God with them. He prayed with them. He heard more of Jesus' sermons than almost anybody, and he received personal instruction from him. He witnessed his miracles. He saw the Father provide for their needs over and over again. He knew Christ, and he walked with God physically on the earth. All during the time he was part of the Twelve, he mostly said and outwardly performed the right things, but he deceived himself. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. It was the glory. It was the position. It was the office. It was the fame of being part of the inner circle that he wanted more than anything, more than he wanted a savior. And this despite hearing warnings firsthand from Christ about trying to serve God and money. And now he even knew that Jesus knew what he was going to do. And he even gets a direct, strong, personal warning in the presence of the, other, of the rest of the twelve. And he still does it. It's tragic. It's staggering. He still goes ahead. Despite being warned by Christ himself, he still betrays him. And it just goes to show, closeness to the truth is no guarantee of a relationship with the Savior. The tragedy of it struck him in the end, but it was too late. And there's a warning in there for all of us. In some respects, we know as much and more than Jesus, Judas did. We've seen the church grow and expand from the ministry of this original group and his disciples to millions across the world. The truth is right in front of us. We have the word of God given to Moses, to the prophets, and the whole of the New Testament. We have no excuse, as the writer to the Hebrews says. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? There's no escape unless we also heed Christ's warning, unless we also put our trust in him. So we've looked at the preparation, the anointing, and we've looked at the plotting of the betrayal, and now finally the Passover, the sacrificial lamb. Now to be honest with you, <coughs> sometimes to me communion just feels like a ritual and nothing more just going through the motions, especially in the Church of England where we have a fairly set liturgy. And I suspect I'm not the only one. It's easy to take the significance of Holy Communion of the Lord's Supper for granted, isn't it? Now to help avoid that, to really understand the Lord's Supper and to have the significance of its grip us, we would do well to look at the Passover. It's time for the Passover meal. And the disciples ask Jesus, where should we go to prepare for the meal? And he sends them into the city, and he tells them in verse 13, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. And that's exactly what happens. So they go where they are told to, they find exactly what Jesus said they would find, and they get ready for the Passover meal. So what was the Passover meal? Now about 1,500 years earlier, as I'm sure most of you know, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. And there's a series of warnings and plagues, and God passes judgment on the Egyptians for not letting the Israelites go. And the Israelites are warned judgment is going to come. They're told to avoid the coming judgment. You must sacrifice a lamb and place its blood on the doorposts and lintels of your home. They are not told, don't worry, if you're an Israelite, you'll be okay. They're not told, don't worry, if you have the right pedigree or if you've lived the right life or if you move in the right circles, you'll be okay. They're told there will be a sacrifice. Either the firstborn son in your home will die or the lamb will die as a substitute, as a substitutionary sacrifice, in which case death will pass over you, hence Passover. They would be saved on the basis of their faith in a substitutionary sacrifice, and the judgment comes, and either the firstborn child in the home dies, or the judgment passes over the home where a lamb has been sacrificed. And Pharaoh relents, and the Israelites are freed from slavery. And I'm sure you know the rest of the story. Now, Passover was, and still is, the most important of the annual festivals for the Israelites, right? And the meal is a commemoration of all of those events. It's a reminder of how a sacrificial lamb as a substitutionary sacrifice meant that death passed them by and how subsequently they were delivered out of slavery in Egypt. Now, if you ever have the opportunity to attend a Passover meal, then you'll see that there's a number of items that are symbolically very significant, right? And I'll just mention a few. So first of all, there are bitter herbs which symbolize slavery. Secondly, there is cooked egg which symbolizes grief and new life. Thirdly, there is unleavened bread which symbolizes affliction. Fourthly, there are five cups of wine. That's my kind of people. Um, the third cup symbolizes redemption. God redeeming them from captivity to the Egyptians. And lastly, there is roasted lamb's shank, or chicken neck. I don't know how the chicken neck entered into the scene, but anyway. Uh, representing the sacrificial lamb. Those are the elements of the Passover meal. And the man officiating over the meal tells the story. He gives a lengthy account of the experience of the Israelites in Egypt of the Passover, of how God rescued them from being captives and slaves, about their time in the wilderness, and so on. Now, there are two things here that we really have to get hold of because they're really important. There is something about the Lamb, and there is something about the covenant. So, firstly, about the Lamb. Jesus is officiating on this occasion. And at a certain point in the meal, he takes the unleavened bread... He breaks it, he passes it around, and he is supposed to say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all who are in need celebrate the Passover. To their surprise, he says, take and eat. This is my body. 
And he then takes the wine, probably the third cup, the cup of redemption, and again to their surprise, he says something other than what they expect. This is the blood of this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He completely changes the Passover meal. And what doesn't get mentioned in any of the gospel accounts, which should appear during the meal, is the lamb. There's no reference to the lamb. Because the lamb was at the table, not on the table. That's why John the Baptist, a good while before, when he sees Jesus approaching, looks up and says, look, look, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John was remembering the prophecy that Isaiah gave in Isaiah chapter 53 when he said, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. In the space of a few minutes, Jesus changes the symbolism of a Passover meal, which is one and a half thousand years old, and he reveals its true ancient meaning, a meaning which makes him the center of the meal. He takes the relevance and the meaning of Passover, of the Passover meal, of the Passover sacrificial lamb, and he applies it to himself. He's saying that the lamb which was sacrificed to protect the people of Israel was pointing to me. I am the sacrificial lamb they all represented. He's saying that the blood that was shed and placed in the doorposts and lintel was pointing to my blood. My blood which will be poured out for many for those who will be saved. And he's saying that those who are covered by that blood will be passed over at the coming judgment and welcomed into the promised land. Jesus is saying he's the substitute that atones for sins which those lambs represented. He's the reason why your sins can be passed over at God's final judgment. It's what theologians call substitutionary atonement. Jesus didn't just die generally for everyone. He died specifically as a substitute for those individuals who put their faith in him. Now notice as an aside, just by the way, that the unleavened bread didn't become the original unleavened bread of thousands of years ago. Likewise, the bread doesn't become Jesus' actual body or the wine, his actual blood. His actual body was physically there and is now in glory. So that's the first thing. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Now about the covenant. Look at verse 24. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. What does he mean by that? My blood of the covenant. Please turn to Genesis 12 on page 13 of your Bible. <coughs> Genesis 12, page 13. And this is the account of the covenant that God made with Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, God changes his name to Abraham later on, by the way. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The covenant that God made with Abraham continued to unfold throughout the Old Testament, and it applies today. If you're a Christian, you're a spiritual heir of Abraham, and you are living proof that God keeps his word which is pretty amazing. All believers are the peoples on earth 
that he refers to Jews and Gentiles blessed by God. And Paul confirms it in Galatians 3 when he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, this promise that we just read. And God guarantees that covenant for Abraham in a fairly amazing way. Now, how do we nowadays guarantee a covenant or confirm an oath? How do we bind somebody to an oath that they're making? For example, in court. In the UK, when you give an oath or an affirmation, you swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? Or in, an, in another context, you may sign a witnessed binding agreement of some kind, correct? Now, in Abraham's day, an oath between two parties was established through a special ceremony in which a number of animals were killed. They, they were, most of them were cut in two, and the carcasses were placed in two rows with a passage between them. And both parties in the covenant then walked together into the space between the parts and made their promises. The oath was especially sacred because of all that shed blood. And violating your oath would bring dishonor on you and yours in a time and in a place when honor was regarded very, very highly. You were also essentially saying, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I break the terms of this covenant. That was the ceremony that they used to use. Abraham asks God, how can I be sure that the promises will come true? Genesis 15. And God guarantees the covenant he has made. So turn to Genesis 15, page 15. <coughs> Reading from verse 9. So the Lord said to Abram, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Now turn over to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And he goes on. God is represented by a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch passing between the animal carcasses down the passage we described. But there is something different this time. The other party doesn't participate. Abraham doesn't pass between the carcasses. God's confirming a covenant with him, but he doesn't require Abraham to pass between the carcasses. Only God does that. Abraham does and says nothing, even though he and we, his heirs, are party to the covenant. Why is there this break in protocol? It's because Adam and his heirs, you and I, cannot possibly fulfill the terms of that covenant. We can't pay the price which will enable the terms and the benefit of that covenant to be realized. Only God can do that. God is saying that he will pay the price. He's saying that he will be sacrificed as those animals were in order to meet not only his obligations, 
but yours as well. This is about you, brothers and sisters. If you've placed your faith and trust in the Lord, then God was making this commitment to Abraham on your behalf. So the question is, will you pay the price for your sins, or will the sacrificial lamb pay the price for your sins? That's the question. Just as with that original Passover, no ancestry, no behavior, no heritage, no upbringing, and no good works are good enough, we need to put our trust in the ultimate sacrificial lamb. It's through Jesus' sacrifice that the terms of the covenant God made with Abraham are completely fulfilled. That's why, why Hebrews chapter 13 says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything you need for doing his will. And that's our final point, Passover, the sacrificial lamb. The apostles and the others may not have had all the, you know, the relentless and unquestioning faith of Mary, but in due course they would understand the significance of that preparation in which Mary anointed Christ and honored him as her Lord, her King, and her Savior because he was going to be sacrificed. They would understand the tragedy of Jesus plotting, of Judas plotting, I beg your pardon, to betray Jesus because he was consumed by a lust for money and power. And they would really understand the importance of the Lord's Supper in which you can remember pass over with Jesus as the sacrificial covenant lamb. And we should ask our Lord that we too will be able to remember those things. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that there is comfort for us of knowing that there is certainty with the great story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Thank you for the covenant of grace which you made with Abraham and was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus on our behalf. Thank you for the remembrance of the Lord's Supper which helps us to remember the sacrifice that was made. We pray, as the writer to the Hebrews says, that you will equip us, Lord, for everything to do good according to your will and that you will work in us everything that is pleasing to you. And we pray and ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.